Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, today we are taking on the deep and dark topic of who am I? Who am I? You know, figuring out yourself is is not as simple as drawing a self-portrait. You know, we ha- we always ask ourselves, often ask ourselves, you know, what is the purpose of life? Is there a God? You know, what on earth are we doing here? And among life's big questions, the one that's always interested me is who am I? You know, I imagine that other people find this question to be very interesting and meaningful as well. You know, human beings are hyper-social creatures. We care a lot at times sometimes too much about what other people think and as such it seems natural that we should care about who we are and what we think of ourselves but how does one get to the bottom of who am I you know uh, psychology has a lot to say about this question however those familiar with major themes uh, to emerge from psychology over the past few decades may realize that the mind is prone to some major major pitfalls that make it very ill-suited for figuring out the self. There, there's a, a, a lot of themes in particular that call into question the mind's capacity for self-discovery. The biggest one is our brain is programmed to make things up. You know, the first, you know, our mind isn't uh, calibrated to perceive reality as it is but rather is calibrated to make sense of our reality. And so often, this means that our mind makes up stuff that doesn't really exist. And a well-known example of that, although we literally cannot see anything in what is known for the blind spot, the, 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 the spot in our visual field where nerves connect to the retina, but our brain fills in this gap in our visual field. But you wouldn't know that in your daily experience. You know, likewise, there's a variety of findings that show we're programmed to see patterns, even if they don't actually exist, that leads us to infer meaning to total random events. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people, for instance, imagined that they saw the devil in the smoke in 9-11, you know, uh, in the attacks on 9-11 on the World Trade Center. You know, many of us were convinced that, that basketball players uh, go through hot times and cold times even when the player's performance is merely going through random cycles you know uh, the fact that we are programmed to see things that don't really exist implies that our brain is not capable of perceiving the truth about ourselves and we may be making things up about ourselves that isn't really true for for example you know our brain may make up reasons why we decided to marry the person we married or we choose a, a particular product over another. You know, there's a whole lot of findings in decision making that suggests that we are routinely blind to true determinants of our judgments and decisions. A no- notion that's often repeated in the work of behavioral economists, you know, and that's why our mind is particularly ill suited for figuring out the self, even if the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and why we did what we did are sometimes true 
we're often unable to discern whether our self-told stories are true or fabricated. You know, uh, the, the desire for self-discovery can interfere with discovering the self also, you know, and, and that's that act of trying to figure ourselves out may interfere with uh, who, we, who we really are. And what is known is, uh, and it's called, I think it's something called the mere measurement effect. And, and they found, researchers found that people who are asked questions about an activity or a product behave differently from those who were not asked those questions. For example, those who were asked if they were likely to donate, for instance, blood up for up to a year, even though those per- people were likely to never even have the thought of donating blood, within a year after being asked the question would go, donate blood. You know, we are very suggestive creatures. Uh, we follow other people's trends to to capture our own identity. And it's interesting, in the developmental stage, somewhere between 9 and 13, uh, kids are often borrowing other kids' personality traits, things that the other kids are doing, the things that other kids are wearing, the behaviors and words that other kids are saying, trying to identify who they are through that other person's uh, identity. And so, you know, and the, oftentimes they borrow it from television or they borrow it from music or whoever their people are. But in that developmental stage, we kind of learn to borrow from each other. You know, um, the I person is a more complicated than our mind can conceive. You know, like reality itself, it, it can be too complex and dynamic to be fully understood through our minds. And to be sure, we can make some relatively accurate broad stroke generalizations about ourselves. But it's, un, you know, uh, something like, uh, yeah, I, I don't smoke or I haven't smoked or I don't drink or, you know, I don't drink alcohol. I like some food better than others, you know. But you, you need to be cautious in, in coming up to f- with uh, too many specific conclusions about yourself because what happens is you end up boxing yourself in. You know, the truth is that we're not uh, one person, but we're actually many people in one. In fact, the most accurate way to think of ourselves is that as we exist as a broad set of potentialities is a, is a narrow set of traits. The particular trait that we manifest at any point in time depends on the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So that means that we are adaptive creatures. And, uh, you know, and, and this also means that we have trained thoughts of reactions because we may have not had a well thought out reaction before and then something happens similar and and that happens again you know it, it could be you know very simple like uh uh, uh making a friend that, that we didn't like very much and then oftentimes uh, that friend betraying us or whatever, we liked them, they betrayed us and then all of a sudden we start mirroring that behavior pattern and the fear of having that friend not of uh, other friends not like us and then that pattern becomes a reality and it becomes a theme in our life. You know, it's, it's, it's really this question, who I am, does not mean that the mind is totally useless when it comes to answering the question. But, you know, we certainly can make some broad generalizations about ourselves. But further, we can also come to understand, though we use the mind, that the mind has its limits, especially when it comes to self-inquiry. You know, so is there any alternative? Well, there's, uh, you know, all spiritual traditions involve a practice of silence that encourages exploring the space of no thought. And the idea is to switch off the mind 
so that you know that what the, uh, the reality is as it is. And that is perceiving reality without the filter of the mind. A- and if you think about this, when you have no thoughts, you're simply thinking about an action. You're thinking about something that needs to get done, like sheep jumping over a, 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 a hurdle. You know, if we focus on the not the thoughts, but we focus on an action or we focus on on uh, something that has a function, then what happens is we begin to dull our minds enough to get down to what is the reality that's facing me right now. You know, this question I am is 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 uh, suggests that there's actually a plausible answer, almost. As, as if we're being uh, aware of being a fixed thing. Well, we're not fixed thing. People who ask this sort of question are typically struggling with their identity and are searching for a core sense of themselves. So the irony is, is that the more you seek to identify who you are, the more fragile you're likely to feel about yourself. There may be an inverse correlation between the question being asked and the ease in which you experience your life. You know, the emphasis shouldn't be on discovering who you are and what's buried beneath, but but on facilitating the emergence of what you'd like to experience in your life. You know, our identity should be seen as an ongoing process, not an outcome, rather than a, a static snapshot. We should embrace a flowing sense of self, whereby we uh, perpetually are reframing, reorganizing, rethinking, reconsidering who we are. And how different would life be rather than asking who am I, we contemplate how we'd like to engage life. Now, a lot of people fall into their coping skills. You know, if, if you think of depression or you think of uh, sleeping too much or if you think of uh, over-talking other people, that becomes a part of people's personality. And the more that they take in those, those learned behaviors, the more they consume that person's personality and they begin to identify with their defense mechanisms rather than the core of who they are. You know, to explore defense mechanisms... Be with someone who you love, who criticizes you and critiques you, and don't be defensive. If you can just shut up and and actually validate the other person and allow them to have the perception of you rather than defend yourself, if you have the need to always be right, you're never going to have an idea of what your life could be, should be, or might be. You know, there's... uh, uh, you know, also, if you look at, uh, imagine you, you've been in prison for 20 years, uh, maybe incarcerated since you were 18, and you literally have no adult life experience outside of being locked up. And so your sense of self can be very limited. You might ask yourself, who am I? Well, this would likely provoke a fragile sense of self that paradoxically might leave you almost apprehensive about your release. You you could hardly choose to remain imprisoned until you could find your identity. You have to permit the new sense of self to flow from your experiences. And living in prison for 20 years, you're likely going to be in a situation where you've done the same thing, talked to the same people, had the same conversations. You're, You're not likely to have evolved too much because you're not interacting with all of people outside of life with free will. You know, um, at the other end of the identity uh, continuum, there's also people who claim to know themselves so well. And and so that also 
uh, signifies a fragility about a person's identity. So to know yourself so well leaves no room for growth. That means you're always right. Even more, it suggests a deeply vul- deep vulnerability that is being defended against and, and it, as if it were too dangerous to take a closer look at something different. So it makes perfect sense to seek a deeper uh, sense of self and to become intimately uh, you know, aware of your thoughts, your feelings, your hopes, your fears. It's obviously an advisable thing to do, but the key is is to engage your sense of self as malleable, to be more like a, a, a willow tree than a sturdy oak. You know, the willow is flexible, it survives, it bends with the wind, whereas the more rigid oak is more likely to crack and fall. You know, the universe purportedly exists in a state of flowing potential also, and it is essential to understand that we are indeed a part of the universe. And so the goal then is to assess that potential, keep the parts of our identity that continue to serve us well, and shred the old. Uh, You know, if you have children, there's a lot of things in your life that you have to shed that were important to you before as an individual. But now that you are living a life where you're responsible for another life, where that person looks up to you, where you are almost uh, godlike, you know, you have to take into account that other those that your children. And so now all of a sudden you have to shed a lot of things that you used to do. You know, uh, the process is known as a positive disintegration. And so uh, this permits us to find balance between the extremes previously uh, that we've been talking about and enter into a relationship with the self that commits to our personal evolution. So what is a personal evolution? Well, what are you passionate about? You know, this question often confounds people. What am I passionate about? Well, I don't know. You know, after a while, people compromise so much in their jobs, in their life, in their marriage, in their work, in everything that they do, that they end up going through midlife crises at some point to rewrite their constitution. And, and, and that damages a whole lot of things in their life. But what I'm trying to get to is, is that that compromising factor also compromises who we are if we don't make any room for it. So who you are? Well, who you are is a decision. It's a decision on what kind of food you like, what kind of relationship you want to have, what kind of marriage do you want to have, what kind of job do you want to have, how happy do you want to be in life, how much do you want to engage people, how much don't you, how much time do you need alone, how much time do you need with other people. These are very important decisions that we have to make, but we have to realize we can always change our mind. You know, when young people find themselves, they have developed a sense of what they're all about or their true identity, and that we call the coming of age. And it's a similar theme often represented in uh, films like the old American graffiti and novels like Catcher in the Rye. You know, all these terms refer to the stage of life when a young person has matured, they feel good about themselves at work, play, relationships, and look forward to the future. We first become interested in our personal identity during adolescence. But when we begin asking ourselves identity-related questions along the lines of who am I, what do I stand for, what do I want out of life, you know, most people don't know what to do. So what do they do? Go study psychology or 
uh, philosophy or religion. You know, adolescence is a period marked by dramatic, transformative, developmental changes over a short span of years, which occur relatively rapidly and involve every cell and sinew of, of the human mind. Uh, uh, sinew, sorry about that. And, and so there may be some turmoil at that time of life, but many parents expect adolescents' lives to be filled with turbulence, um, you know, and there's a lot of truisms about identity that is found in adolescence. Like many adolescents do not experience emotional upheaval. Identity, you know, is not the sole domain of adolescence. Coming to grips with our identity is not resolved during the adolescent years. It's, it's, it's a reoccurrent lifelong challenge. So, you know, we revisit existential questions that we ask during adolescence throughout our lives. But, you know, let's just look at a real clear definition at the meaning of life. The meaning of life is so simple. It's being available in the moment you're in and not living in the future, not living in the past, not living in your head, but actually just being available to the person in front of you or to the task that you're doing or whatever it is that you're functioning as or in that is the only thing you're focused on, and that is the true meaning of life because that establishes who we really are. All those other moments that are filled with time and that we're thinking about the future and the past are just coping. All right, come back, and we're going to talk more about our self-identity. Who am I? your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, Decide that you have something to say and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about who am I? And you know what? You know, it's amazing that what you have to understand, you know, if you look at people that go through trauma, um, especially blunt, you know, trauma, whether it's a visual trauma, whether it's a, a physical trauma, whatever it is, it's interesting because people are so deep into the question of who am I and establishing their personal identity that trauma is not something that we're consulted on. It just happens. And it happens to us and it happens in a way that we have never coped with before. And what's really interesting is the biggest part of the psychology to deal with trauma victims is that this intruded on their personality this intruded on who they were this was something that was completely out of their control and has damaged their life in some way and uh, now they're trying to cope with it and that means that they're forced to integrate a very negative event into their personality and they know that that's going to change them and they can't stand the fact that 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 the fact that they have to integrate a traumatic experience is going to drive that's going to drive them in a different direction uh, than what they were headed at when they were making their own choices for their life. And so that is an interesting thing because I, I work in a lot of trauma and that 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 really takes on its own life. Uh, if you understand that concept, which may have been kind of confusing by the way I said it, but if you really get that concept that trauma is an unwanted part, becomes an unwanted part of who we are, that if you understand that that has to be integrated into our identity, then you understand the challenge of dealing with the psychology of it and treating it. All right, now let's get out of that and back to the deep question of who am I? You know, uh, we wrestle with these questions all the time with that question, who am I? We are uh, uh, sentient beings, and as we are constantly reevaluating ourselves and our goals, we think about these identity-related issues, and they appear in our dreams and in our unconscious thought. And so wrestling with the existential question, like who am I really, is a necessary part of our lifelong quest for understanding ourselves. And they are important bellwethers and beacons to help us set our personal directions and goals and make important choices and evaluate how we are doing in our journeys. And, uh, you know, ultimately we're seeking fulfillment and meaning in our lives. So write this stuff down. I'm going to give you some questions. This is who am I type of questions. Number one, what are your greatest talents or skills? Which of your talents or skills give you, gives you the greatest sense of pride or satisfaction? You know, what talents or skills do you admire most in other people? And, and, and what do you wish to develop for yourself? You know, if we look at our traits and our qualities, what are your five greatest strengths? What do you feel are your two biggest weaknesses? 
What are your best qualities and characteristics? What qualities do you wish you had? What qualities or traits do you admire in other people? What behaviors or traits do you want other people to admire in you? You know, values are a big thing. And if you're teaching them to children, they, by 10 years old, have established their value system. You know, so if you look at values, what, what, are, what are 10 things that are really important to you? What, what are the three most important things to you? Do you spend enough time on those things that you most value? Why or why not? And, and what are the values that you hold most near to your heart? And, and your perception is your truth. So how is the public you different from the private you? And what makes it hard to be yourself with other people? And how are you trying to please others the way you live your life? What do you want people to think and say about you? How do your behaviors and actions support what they think or say? And, and what do you least want people to think about you? Is that more important to be, be like others or for you to be yourself? You know, um, accomplishments, you know, what are the big things, the big three that you are most proud of in your life today? What do you hope to achieve in your life? What, you know, if you could receive an award or a reward, what, what would it be for? You know, things uh, that, that you are and, and, and are not. What is something that represents you? Like a song, an animal, a flower, a poem, a symbol, a, a piece of jewelry. Uh, what do you like best about yourself? What do you like least about yourself? W what are three things that you would like to change most about yourself? Who are two people in this world that you actually admire? And what do you admire about them? And, and what five things do you love to do? And what matters to you most in life? What makes you happy? You know, look at what are the principles that you stand for? What do you want? To, how do you want to impact other people's lives? You know, uh, finish this sentence. I do best when I struggle when I'm comfortable when I feel stress when I am courageous when one of the most important things I've ever learned was I missed a great opportunity when, you know, one of my favorite memories is. My toughest decisions involve, you know, these are things that help us project what we want our life to look like. And, and maybe asking ourselves, they're saying life should not be about or, or I'm going to make my life about. You know, folks, that those themes, if you grab onto those type of themes, no matter what work you do, no matter what experience you're having in the moment, you can take those and shape them into something much greater than they are because you're going to contribute. You know, um, a lot of people say this thing, just it's just how I am. You know, how many times have you heard that? How, uh, you know, how many times have you thought that? You know, at times when, when a person's confronted because of behavior, uh, another finds off, uh, uh, finds putting off, he or she might reply or think, it's just how I am. But, you know, many of these people... Uh, uh, basically don't understand personality development. Whether you are or you're not is not just because of your genetics. Your caregiver's attitude towards potty training, the fashion which you uh, internalized objects, uh, the, the drive for self-preservation or the drive for self-actualization all play a role, you know, in how we develop who we are. You know, the, the, the goal of therapy, the goal of psychology is insight, 
to understand a person's self. According, you know, uh, according to many philosophers, that is the actual goal in life: is to understand yourself. But is having to understand sufficient or even necessary? Understanding why you do certain things is certainly helpful. Explanations uh, or terms explaining why a person behaves in certain ways are comforting. And it's nice to know that people put thought into explaining human behavior. However, simply understanding others uh, are like you and that you are this way for a particular reason doesn't really solve it. In a way... Uh, you are behaving how you want to behave. And, and, you know, when someone says, this is just how I am, what is really being said, it, it could be uh, 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 something as an excuse. These words have even uh, been prefaced with, I can't help it. It's just who I am. You know, it's a cop-out. In other words, one might be saying, I don't have the motivation to change this aspect of myself. Or... Perhaps that person has attained some level of self-acceptance and simply knows that they are that way and accepts even if others don't. Any and all of these explanations are fine, but it is certainly no desire to change when a person says, that's just how I am. That means I'm set in my ways and don't try to change me. You know, it's amazing that we don't want to take in the influence of other people. You know, especially people that are wise or well thought out. You know, one of the goals of existential therapy and what existential therapy is, is what this, what I stated in the last segment, which is being present in the moment, just being there. And, and so existential therapy is about overcoming conditioning and what most people consider to be their personal history. And this is more than simply resolving feelings from the past. It is also understanding that everyone has the ability to choose in every minute how they're going to react. If acting out of conditioning, you're responsible for that. But if you want to begin to overcome it, to be truly who you choose to be, you actually have that power. And that is what existential philosophy, existential psychology are all about. So being self-created takes a great deal of effort. And uh, short of monks or clerics, no one will expend this type of energy around the clock. But progress and not perfection is a really good goal. Likely a balance of self-acceptance to wanting to be a better person is the healthiest mindset. Now let's think about this just from a, a Christian perspective. Where does God fit into all this? Well, you know, if we become a better us, if we become a deeper us, if we become an us that is all about accepting other people's perception, understanding other people's perception, helping other people in the state they're in and stop judging other people and actually being fully present in the moment, we are going to be a better Christian. And so that in itself is a great thing to think about from a sense of self-identifying. Self-identifying, who am I, is a worthy question for any Christian because that helps us contribute to the lives of others. When we are able to, uh, to recognize our better self, we can be better people to other people and we have more gifts to give them and more satisfaction from having a greater life. So, you know, another way to begin making progress in the area of, of who am I and, and 
is to pick an aspect of your personality that you want to change and remind yourself multiple times a day to be the change. For example, uh, perhaps you want to be more serene. You know, before acting, consider how you want to present. Breathe. Remind yourself to be at peace. Regulate your breathing. Contemplate more than react. And combining these two interventions can lead to a more serene feeling and presentation. You know, it needs to be kept in mind that the goal is progress. And it can be slow, especially with these bad habits that we develop in these defense mechanisms that become a core of who we are. By being more conscious of who one wants to be, one is better able through concerted effort to be that person. And it's a worthy cause. You know, life is not about finding yourself. And this is from George Bernard Shaw. Life is not about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. And it's also important to remember to accept yourself along with the desire to be a better person. You know, uh, two, those two are not mutually exclusive. So self-concept. Now, self-concept is a general term. And it's used to refer to how someone thinks about evaluates or perceives himself and to be aware of oneself is to have a concept of yourself you know so this extensional uh, self is the most basic part of the short scheme or self-concept the sense of being separate and distinct from others and the awareness of constancy of the self you know a child may realize that they exist as a separate entity from others and that they continue to exist over time and space. You know, uh, the, the existential self begins as young, a uh, child, maybe two to three months old, and arises in part due to the relation the child has with the world. For example, the child smiles and someone smiles back or the child touches uh, a mobile and sees it move above their head. You know, these are things that a child begins to realize. There's also our categorical self, you know, having realized that that we exist as a separate uh, experiencing being. You know, children become aware that they are also an object in the world, just as other objects, including people, have properties that can be experienced, big, small, rich, smooth, so on. The child becomes more aware of their self as an object which can be experienced and which has properties. Uh, For example, we often wonder, I often wonder, because, you know, having a five-year-old, this kid will do crazy things and do things for effect. And so that, you know, if, for instance, if you have something, some behavior or something they say that you don't like them to say, and then they say more of it, well, they're going for the effect. So that means they're becoming an object to you and you're treating them like an object of something that's irritating you. And so oftentimes we treat our children as objects and they learn that I am an object because I'm being disciplined and I'm no longer being treated as a human being. Now I'm in a timeout. Now now I'm in trouble. Now I'm losing things that I don't want to lose. And all of a sudden they realize that we're treating them as an object rather than a person because they are treating us like an object rather than a person. But they don't realize that. You know, the, the self can be put into categories such as age, gender, size, or skill. And what's interesting about that is that's where a uh, prejudice comes from. You know, nowadays, uh, as we look at the category of boys and girls, men and women, 
we no longer can fully interpret people uh, by very dry uh, sexual labels like I am straight or I am gay or whatever. People are all over the place and they've always have been. And it's just interesting that people need to have these categories or labels so that they can simplify things and have a simplified reaction to other people. And that's called laziness. That, that this day and age, what's interesting about it is we are so complex as people. And we discover that the more and more we, we read uh, uh, the, the, the Internet and, and social media, the more we get involved in, in, in other people's lives – what we understand is we are very gray. We are not black and white. And we are not all good. We're not all evil. We are, we're gray. And, the, and what's interesting is people require us now, if we're going to be friends, they require us to read through the smoke signals and try to understand that person. That's why a lot of people do not have a lot of friends, not true friends, not trusted friends. A lot of people live with friends in a box. And that's because they can go to the movies with this person, they go work out with this person, they can go play golf with this person, but they don't always have friends across the board. And friends across the board is a, a, it requires a whole lot of energy that oftentimes people aren't even giving to their partner in marriage. And if you're going to have a best friend, be smart. If you want to have a good life, make that best friend be your spouse because that is where you learn how to be friends. And then once you've developed that skill, maybe it will become easier for you to make friends with other people and invest in reading the smoke they blow up through their lives. All right, now, in early childhood, the categories children apply to themselves are very concrete, like hair color, height, favorite things. Later, uh, self-description also begins to include internal psychological uh, traits, comparative evaluations, how others see them. All that kind of self is part of defining our self-concept. All right, now we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about self-concept. We're going to talk about our self according to God, and then we're going to move on into some other uh, uh uh, topics like awareness. Come back. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something that is unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. 
show and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about who am I? You know, self-concept is an image that we have of ourselves, And ex- uh, how exactly does this self-image form and change over time? This, this image develops a number of ways, but it's, it's, it's really influenced mostly by our interactions with important people in our lives. So defining self-concept, it, it, you know, self-concept is generally thought of our individual perceptions of our behavior about our abilities, our unique characteristics. So it's essential, uh, 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 basically a a mental picture of who you are as a person. For example, beliefs such as I'm a good friend or I'm a kind person are part of the overall self-concept. You know, some people have a very dramatic self-concept. You know, uh, here in Washington, we often find people walking uh, the streets and and, uh, tutus and costumes and Darth Vader uniforms and all kinds of uh, different outfits. And basically, that is a part of a self-concept. And that's what's interesting about that is it takes a lot to make that concept work in every scenario in their life. And so some people have to dispose of their self-concept to go to work or to make a living or to do certain things because it's not something that is acceptable in the environment in which they have to make a living or make friends. So many people will take that self-concept and they will just make it a self-facet, a little part of who they are that they only share with a certain amount of people. Some people will let their self-concept come out over the weekend and then go back, you know, maybe they'll start wearing women's clothing as a man or a man, woman wearing men's clothing. Not that they may not do that during the week, but the bottom line is that's something that they're trying to shape 
outside of the the conforming environments that they have to not that they're not fully accepted as a self. You know, self concept tends to be more malleable when people are younger and still going through the process of self discovery and identity formation. But as people age, self perceptions become more and more detailed, more organized as people form a better idea of who they are and what is important to them. You know, so the individual self consists of attributes and personality traits that differentiates us from other individuals, you know, like introversion and extroversion. Well, you know, we can excuse away introversion and extroversion by the fact that introverts tend to get their energy from being alone and extroverts tend to get their energy from being around people. But the truth is, if you're going to be married, you're going to have to have some extroverted features. You can't just be completely introverted because it's going to likely involve children, friends, and your spouse. That means you've got to interact with those people and you cannot fall back on your label of yourself as an introvert or an extrovert. You know, uh, the relational self is defined by our relationships with significant other people and that that good examples would be like our siblings, our friends, our spouses, our children. You know, the collective self is also another self-concept uh, theory and, and that's our aspect and that's our membership in social groups like, uh, you know, people include being British or Republican or African American or gay or whatever, whatever that social group label is, many people will find they have a collective self that they need to identify with also. You know, theories on self-concept are many. Many topics within psychology, a number of theorists have proposed different ways of thinking about your self-concept. You know, uh, if you look at the social identity theory, self-concept is composed of your personal identity and your social identity. You know, personal identity is basically your traits and other characteristics that make a person unique. Social identity refers to how we identify with a collective such as a community, a religion, a political movement. And so, uh, you know, from a social perspective, that's the ability to interact with other people. Then there's a competence aspect, the ability to meet basic needs. And this this all came from a psychologist, uh, Dr. Bruce Bracken. I think it was back in 1992, and he developed these uh, six specific domains related to self-concept. Once again, it was the social, the ability to interact, the competence, the ability to meet our basic needs, the effect, the awareness of emotional states, the physical, feelings about looks, health, physical condition, overall appearance, academic, that is our success or failure in school, and then our family, how well one functions within their family unit. And so this is all very, very important studies because it helps us understand how people conceptualize who they are. You know, if you look at Carl Rogers, he was a very uh, a famous uh, a psychologist. I, I think back about 1955, somewhere in that time frame, he, he became immensely popular as a humanist psychologist. He had three components. One of them is called the self-image or how you see yourself. Each each individual's self-image is, is like a mixture of, of different attributes, including our physical characteristics, our personality traits, 
our social roles. Self-image doesn't necessarily coincide with reality. Some people might have an inflated self-image of themselves, while others may perceive or exaggerate the flaws and weaknesses that others don't see. And then he looked at the self-esteem. You know, how much do you value yourself? You know, a lot of people are givers, but they will give away everything and never have the energy to give anymore. But all they want to do is give, 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 but they don't give to themselves. Givers have to give to themselves. That means they don't have good self-esteem, that they want to buy self-esteem with what they give. You know, a number of factors can impact self-esteem, including how we compare ourselves to others, how others respond to us. When people respond positively to our behavior, we're more likely to develop positive self-esteem. When we compare ourselves to others and find others are, ourselves lacking, it can have a huge negative impact on our self-esteem. And then Rogers looked at the ideal self, how you wish you could be. And in many cases, the way we see ourselves and how we like to see ourselves do not really add up. And so Rogers looked at the terms congruence and incongruence. And uh, and once again, our self-concepts are not always perfectly aligned with reality, but some uh, people might believe that they are uh, great at academics, but their school transcripts right, might really say a different story. But according to Carl Rogers, the degree to which a person's self-concept matches up to reality is known as congruence and incongruence. So he believed that incongruence has its earliest roots in childhood. And when parents place conditions on their affection for their children, only expressing love if the child earned it through certain behaviors and living up to the parents' expectations, children begin to distort the memories of experiences that leave them feeling unworthy of their parents' love. And then there's unconditional, what he called positive regard, unconditional love. And that helps foster congruence. So in the therapy, what Carl Rogers would do is give unconditional positive regard and what he believed was all people had the answers to their own questions inside them and the job of the therapist was to bring that out in the person and let them self-discover who they are. You know, now let's look and jump off into a different realm which is the self according to God. And that is an identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. So how would viewing yourself in this manner change the way you live? And, and what are some of the objects in doing this? Well, you have to wonder, well, how does God see us? Well, first, we really have to know how God sees us. One of the richest passages about identity in the Bible is found in in Ephesians uh, 1, uh, chapter 1, 3 through 14. And in that passage, Paul addresses the church in Ephesians explaining how the new identity given to a person when they're in Christ. And according to Ephesians 1, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have been chosen We have been adopted, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we're grace-lavished, we're unconditionally loved and accepted. We are pure, blameless, forgiven, and we have received the hope of spending eternity with God when we're in Christ 
And these aspects of our identity can never be altered by what we do. There's also these objects, uh, obstacles, oftentimes of, of, of living a self according to God. You know, there's a gap that may exist between knowing the truths about who God says we are and living them out. And this can affect how we see ourselves, life experiences, and the ways we allow the world to define us. So to in order to live out the fullness of our new identity in Christ, we must determine what is hindering us from doing so, which which varies from person to person. So many times, a false belief has wedged itself between how God defines us and how seeing ourselves in the same light. For example, the opposite of pure and blameless will be impure, stained, and guilty. Perhaps a life uh, experience has caused you to feel impure, so you believe God sees you in this way. You then create and live out the identity based on your actions, which is contrary to how God really sees you. You know, and, and in order to fight these beliefs, we need to discover the exact belief we're allowing to form our identity. And when reflecting on that Ephesians 1, some false beliefs may live out uh, uh, are rejected instead of accepted, in bondage instead of redeemed, under the law instead of covered by grace, feeling orphaned instead of being adopted. You know, living out uh, those uh, those identities opposed to our new identity in Christ, which uh, accepts the belief and accepts the the exception the how God accepts us, how God forgives us. When we live through that, we are able to experience a much richer and deeper life. And so what do we do with false beliefs? Once you recognize a false belief, surrender it to in repentance to God, which means to change your mind. Sometimes the lie is connected to a very real, painful experience. So take some time to grieve over the experience, invite God into a place of brokenness, and after you've surrendered uh, the lie over to God, pray that he will help you believe the truth about who he says you are and make you aware of times you're not believing in it. And then make the choice to believe it. So, so viewing yourself as God sees you really matters. So if we lived out the identity based on how God sees us, we would no longer feel the need for our worth uh, in our external circumstances. We are, would be freed up to live in a confident, stable manner instead of changing who we are based on others, the jobs we receive or don't receive, how we see ourselves, the other ways we try to define our significance. It, it, it gives us a great opportunity to experience God's unconditional love for us in a new and fresh way. So how would believing the truth about your new identity in Christ change the way you live? Well, that's a good question. Now, there's another topic called self-awareness. And, and simply put, it's, it's the awareness of yourself with the self being what makes one's identity unique. So when we focus our attention on ourselves, we evaluate, we compare our current behavior to our internal standards and values, and we become self-conscious as objective evaluators of ourselves. So knowing one's internal states, preference, resources, influences, intuitions are all about self-discovery and about all about being present. You know, this is, uh, of course, easier said than done, but non-judgmental uh, quality is an essential component of self-awareness. And how do we work towards that? We notice what's happening inside of us. We acknowledge and accept them as an inevitable part of, of being human. But rather than giving in to those defense mechanisms, those things that 
our, our, our typical reactions that we've learned rather than the real reactions we'd like to give, what happens is we hinder ourselves if we follow that defense mechanism. So self-awareness is experienced also by a chance to learn and grow and have other humans possibly make uh, a similar mistake and learn from it. And so it goes beyond uh, accumulating knowledge about ourselves. It's also about paying attention to our inner state with a beginner's mind and an open heart. No need to be defensive. Our mind is extremely skillful at storing information about how we react to a certain event to form a blueprint of our life and just goes off automatic. Becoming self-aware means that we, we, we detach ourselves from those automatic programmed reactions. That's our show. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. D-R-G-B-M-F-T at SBCGlobal.net. Uh, or you can uh, uh, just uh, log on to our shows uh, on the Voice America link and you can uh, write me from there. Now remember, if you want to feel better about yourself, have a bumper sticker that says, honk if you think I'm sexy, then wait when the light turns green. Now just think. If people started to like how they looked, millions of multi-million dollar businesses, multi-billion dollar businesses throughout the world would collapse. Thanks for listening. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 